You're listening to Points in Between. This is episode six, Behave. This episode of Points in Between explores the relationship between students and the people on the other end of the equation at school, their teachers. You'll hear stories about how students and teachers interact with each other in classrooms here and in places around the world. If your only experience of American education has been as a student, or maybe as a student and a parent, you may feel like you intimately understand schools. But I'm just going to be blunt here. You don't. There is a whole world of activity going on behind the scenes, and as a student or even as a parent, you only catch glimpses of it. I'm not trying to be dismissive. I'm sure you've made some good observations. I'm just saying, getting your hair cut does not make you a barber. Let me illustrate. Here's Kat describing her elementary school classroom in Spain. I remember doing a lot of um, what I now, looking back, think of as like stations or free choice, um, where every student would be sort of working at a different level on a different activity, but we had these kind of workbooks that we would be working on. And so uh, the teacher would sort of float and just kind of check in on each student one-on-one. And I don't remember a lot of lecturing or like listening to the teacher explain things to the whole class. My memory of it is that it was very individuated, but I don't know if that's true. From the student perspective, this classroom involves independent activity. You, the student, move through the space of the classroom. You maybe have some relaxed interactions with classmates while you work or explore. You feel a fair amount of volition and control over your experience. The teacher drifts in and out of your vision at seemingly random points. The teacher view is very different. You see maybe 30 individuals moving through a path you set up, any one of whom can veer wildly off course at any time. Rather than a close focus on a single task, your mind is engaged in pattern recognition, looking and listening for anything that might require your directed attention. There are certain classroom sounds and movements that are within expected parameters, and if you're a teacher, your focus gets drawn to anything outside of that norm. Students, in your perception, shift back and forth. One second a kid is an individual, The next, she's part of a separate collective entity called the class. Your goal is to get each individual to learn, but to do that, you have to choreograph a dance for the whole class. It takes a lot of skill and practice to do that well. And what I just gave you is a pretty mechanical analysis. It leaves out the students' personalities and their enjoyment or lack of enjoyment of the process. It doesn't consider the teacher's skills or the teacher's goals for student learning. And it ignores the most important thing in the room, which is the complicated personal relationships between students and teachers. So with those two views in mind, as you hear people's descriptions of their school experiences, I'm going to draw your attention to four different aspects of the teacher-student relationship. And for organizational purposes, I'm just going to call them teaching methods, hierarchy, formality, and privacy. We'll start with Raouf, who lived in Yemen until he was 16. For elementary school, I was 
mainstream education you get learn the language and some other uh, subjects you know but mainly like art you know since they were trying to get us grow and have fun and then once you get in into middle school you start to take subjects such as you know history biology there was school uh, but uh, the resources were not very uh, sufficient and the teaching was not very well constructed and so it wasn't very uh, informative i mean that's how i felt uh, when i came and i compare and contrast between the us and i know it's a big comparison but uh, yeah, Yemen is a poor country, and in fact, it's the poorest, you know, maybe country in the Middle East, and uh, that's just unfortunate. And uh, the fact that I was living in the rural area it meant a lot because there was not so much of an effort to give too much uh, resources, and the teachers were not just showing up. And then at the same time, you know, I just felt that my time was not. Uh, efficient and I was not really productive going to school um, and I didn't feel also safe. This is a pretty blunt critique of the teaching methods in Raouf's school in Yemen. His teachers had neither the material resources nor the knowledge and skills to make school feel useful to him. And as he said, he also felt unsafe while he was there. For example, the treatment of the teachers uh, to, the t- to the students is very yeah, sort of violent like you know if you show up late to school then you get hit by the uh, the teacher will hit you like maybe eight to ten times in your head and uh, by the time you know you get into the school you kind of like okay this is enough i don't even want to go anymore and that's the uh, the reality i mean um um most of students don't uh, if, if they sort of like woke up uh, late or they got caught up in their way into school and there is that sort of fear already inside them you know that make them feel like you know i don't even want to go because what would i get nothing and then uh, only you know maybe getting my my hands getting hit and I, and that's why i decided just to help my mom and my siblings by you know uh, working uh, at the farm and some other, you know, jobs. There's an incredibly complicated power dynamic in classrooms. The core question is, how much control should the teacher exercise over events in the classroom? And what tools does the teacher have to enforce that control? In any school, the answer is a mix of cultural and institutional factors. In Raouf's description, the teacher is the only decision maker. Power is not shared. And to enforce this order, Raouf's teachers were allowed to use corporal punishment. The institution itself gave them that tool. Between the poor teaching methods and the enforced hierarchy, it just didn't feel worth it to Raouf to be there. So he left. Corporal punishment of students is a tool wielded by schools in most parts of the world, which is a pretty clear statement about hierarchy. In the U.S., corporal punishment is allowed in public schools in 19 states and prohibited in 31. Only two states outlaw corporal punishment in private schools, Iowa and New Jersey. Just because the state allows corporal punishment, though, doesn't mean schools choose to use it. A majority of all corporal punishment in the U.S. happens in just five states, 
Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Mississippi, and Texas. And then also there's the question of who within a school has the right to use it and under what circumstances. In Raouf's school, teachers had the individual discretion to use it at will. In the U.S., the actual hitting is only done by the principal in a lot of places, sometimes only with the express permission of parents. And Raouf had one more point to note. And then the other thing is, um, you know, uh, women are segregated. That's social, uh, social aspects. And that's what I find really interesting from, you know, moving from Yemen to, to, to. So in a sense, everything was uh, sort of transformative for me, like socially, academically, when I came to the United States. And it took me uh, a while to uh, adjust. Gender segregation is a complicated topic. But in the simplest terms, in Yemen, men and women are segregated in public spaces, but close family members can interact in private spaces. The segregation of girls in school indicates that the classroom is firmly situated in the public sphere, not the private. When Serafan began school in California at age 16, he noticed some pretty big differences between his American school and the one he attended in Senegal. The way students act in class, like you can here, people can drink in class, water, whatever that is. You can talk to the guy sitting next to you. Back home, to, in order to get water, you have to raise your hand and ask, can I get some water? Sometimes you say yes, sometimes you say no. And you cannot just turn around and talk to the person next to you. You might get kicked out of class or whatever. So it was, like, it was a shock when I seen students chatting in class. I was like, oh. This is good. I like that. <laughs> yeah, in class is just class. Because if you get caught talking to anybody without the teacher's permission, is is either you go behind the door on your knees, or you get kicked out of class. And then when you get kicked out of class, uh, usually what they ha- what they have is like supervisors walking around the whole school looking at who get kicked out of class, so they can call your parents. And then nobody wanted to have their parents come over. I remember getting kicked out once and teacher goes, stay outside of the door. And I'm thinking like, oh, I don't think so. So I went to the bathroom, I was just in the bathroom for like hours until class was over and I went back to class. <laughs> but I wasn't thinking about standing in front of that door and seeing a supervisor. Oh, your son is outside, he got kicked out of class. And no. Not gonna happen. Did you have a good? Do you remember having a good relationship with your teachers? Like, what was that relationship like, or was it very distant? How would you describe it? Ah, very distant. It was just school. I'm the teacher. You're a student. The only teacher I only had a good conversation with my uh, PE teacher because love exercise. So we talk about soccer and a lot of basketball and other stuff. One way to think about Serafin's description is in terms of hierarchy. But this description also involves formality, by which I mean an expectation that everyone, teacher and student alike, will follow a set of behaviors dictated by their role in the classroom. These aren't separate things. The rules governing student behavior are aligned with the hierarchy of the classroom. The teacher had the ability to use corporal punishment to maintain that order. The emotional distance that existed between Serafin and most of his teachers, anyway, 
was also an expression of that formality and hierarchy. Their respective roles, teacher and student, in most cases didn't provide space for more personal relationships. In his California classroom, by contrast, those particular rules, that formality, didn't exist. Even if his teachers were frustrated by student chatter, and I suspect they were, the classroom was a space that allowed for some negotiation between teacher and student, and teachers could not use corporal punishment to enforce or influence student behaviors. When everybody walks to school, you have the prin- like principal at the door looking at how you dress, and because I remember not taking my shirt in, and I, I got called in. When I was in class, I got called into on their phone and go to the principal office. I was like, what do I do? Or whatever. So I get there, uh, your shirt is not tucked in, uh, you're wearing a hat, which is not allowed. I was like, take it off. They took it away. Uh, you don't have a belt either. Okay, fine, take off your pants. So I took out my pants, left here at the principal office. They kicked me out. I went home with a short. And then got home, what happened? Oh, I was dressed incorrectly and I got a beating. So the next day, I figured out how to dress the proper way to go to school. It was like, well, that's the way to do it. <laughs> Wait, so let me make sure I understand this. Wait, how old were you when this happened? Uh, probably like 16. Okay, so 16, you show up at school, the principal says you're not dressed properly, calls you into his office, makes you take off your pants <laughs> and send you back home with your underwear. Yeah, and then get home give explanation to my dad oh give me a bidding the next day went back with a belt and proper clothes it's a little bit it's okay now of course but when I grew up it was like yeah it was hard you wake up thinking ah, I don't want to go to school whatever you got to deal with what you got to do right <laughs> in this account Serafin's principal enforced the dress code a type of formality through the use of corporal punishment and, I think we can safely assume, humiliation. The lesson was reinforced at home by Serafin's dad. So, also, if we consider this in terms of privacy, Serafin's school world extended its reach into his home world. Nearby in the Gambia, Linger described a similar school hierarchy. So the expectations of how children behaved in the classroom, I mean, is way more severe I think the students I have right now in the school I teach in are actually really polite, so I don't have that many issues with them. But in Gambia, I don't think the children necessarily ruder, but the punishments were more intense. They actually had stopped beating children a few years before I went into high school, but they'd pull your ears. And one time, one of my teachers thought I was making noise, and she pulled my ears, and I'm still angry about this, and I wasn't making noise. And she pulled my ears, and it's really painful. Yeah, I <laughs> I can tell you're like worked up still. Like <laughs> twenty years ago. I guess you might question me for laughing at this point, and that would be totally fair. But I wasn't laughing at Linger's physical pain. It was more that suddenly, in that moment in our interview, Linger's adult self just disappeared, and she became, for a moment, the outraged eight-year-old who got her ear pulled. It's a reminder that students often disagree with teaching methods, with school hierarchies, with rules, with violations of their privacy. They just can't always effectively resist. I think the accounts you've heard so far also give something of a false impression. Hierarchy doesn't always involve emotional distance. Kids are sometimes the ones to break down the boundaries between home and school, private and public. 
And even though they don't want to be on the receiving end of corporal punishment, students may see benefit to the orderliness of hierarchical school cultures. Consider Kat's view of her teacher in Spain. I also feel like I knew her very well. Uh, We actually called her by her first name. My teacher, Florencia, was her name. And... Um, but part of that too is that we had the same teacher for multiple years and, and the same group of students. So the dynamics were sort of almost family-like, but there was definitely a sense of, I don't think respect is the, is a strong enough word, but there was a very, there was adoration and like a very clear boundary between the students and the teachers. And even though we used her first name, I remember having this like healthy fear of her in a way. Uh, I feel like she was very, um, she wasn't, I wouldn't qualify her as like a strict disciplinarian, but she had, you know, full control all the time of the class. Kat's relationship with her teacher was at the same time, emotionally close and also extremely formal. At her new school in Texas, she was confused by the mismatch between her teacher's official role as teacher and her behavior. The way adults interacted with kids, and I can't quite put my finger on it. They had like big hairsprayed hair and lots of lipstick and kind of like big Texas personalities. And I was just so fascinated by them, but there's something about the way they interacted with the kids that was so different. I'm not sure what it was, but I... Even as an adult who is herself a teacher, Kat struggles to explain the difference between those two formal roles. She tried again to explain how she thought about her teacher in Spain. A person that that kind of has like a distinct identity that's not human if that makes sense like there I don't know just the way we would interact with her it's not that we didn't feel comfortable around her but we wouldn't treat her in the way that you would treat a family member this culturally constructed teacher persona is itself a tool to engage students and make them want to learn it's flexible and in many ways more powerful than corporal punishment but it also takes training and practice for a teacher to act the part to strike the right balance between engaging lessons, personal mystery, and emotional connection. In Texas, Kat was just as surprised by the behavior of her new classmates as she was by her teachers. Before I went to school in Texas, I had never seen, you know, a student basically talk back to a teacher. And I remember, and I I remember it happening before I understood what was being said, but just the sound of it and the the facial expressions and I remember being so shocked by it just blown away by you know this this little boy named Scoots Hazel who would just I mean the teacher would say you know put away your books or whatever it was and Scoots would be like throwing something across the room and I just I like could not fathom how he dared to do that it just I mean part of me was actually really impressed (laughs) by Scoots Hazel. I was like, he's so daring. (laughs) He must have a superpower. But I I had never, you know, I don't remember a single time when a student in my Spanish classroom defied the teacher. 
Kat's account gets at how truly disconcerting this cross-cultural classroom transition can be. If a classmate could defy a teacher, what else was possible? And in a scenario where such a fundamental rule no longer applied, what did it even mean to be a student? Let's not forget that all these people in classrooms, students and teachers alike, are individuals. The culture and the institution may set certain parameters, but each person still makes choices about how to engage with others. Listen to Roya's account of her teacher in Afghanistan. Actually, my first grade teacher, um, she was one of the beautiful women. Uh, I think all the kids were in love with her because she was dressing up really nice. She had this curly hair. The way how she was, uh, she was super nice. She was really kind and gentle to the kids. She never um, raised her voice. Um, and all the kids loved her. She was, uh, uh, yeah. It's incredible because after such a long time, you just like light up when you talk about her, even though it's been years. It is. It is. It's just because it's been a year so I haven't thought about it, but you just brought it up. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. While her teacher was beloved, teachers had wide latitude to enforce their control, and students had little recourse if a teacher chose violence over kindness. And, as in Serafin's school, teachers could expect most parents to reinforce their decisions in the home. It's like you have to respect the teachers. You have, like you have no voice, you have, no, you know, there's no parents going to, the parents going to stick around with what the teacher says. So, um, you know, when you sit there, you have to be, certain way you have to behave, you, you know, you can't interrupt the class. There's um, definitely punishments <laughs> for kids. It's uh, really strict, very, very strict. Do you remember feeling like, um, I don't know, like you wanted to rebel against that or was it just normal? That was the way school was, you didn't think about it? Um, it was a normal and it was not normal. There was a certain teachers that they were going to such extremes that we were happy to see we don't have those teachers in our classroom, but because uh, I guess we were kind of, I was lucky that I had the great teachers where they were nice and they weren't mean. And, and then next our other class, it was the lady that she was very mean and she would do things that literally we appreciate what we had. <laughs> but um, yeah, some teachers, it would, it would really go in extreme ways, yeah. which really horrified, it was just scary. Roya is clear about her disapproval of the teachers in Afghanistan who used extraordinary methods to control their classes. But she also saw drawbacks to the very different system she encountered in California. Teachers didn't have much of control of the, the, the kids. Uh, you know, they keep sending kids to principal. I was like, oh, this whole system is so easy. <laughs> this is a piece of cake. It's like, really? You just... You know, it's just, I really find American systems really easy for children to be able to express themselves. Uh, there's no pressures of education, there's no pressures, so you have to learn this. You know, if you don't, you fail, you fail because there's no repercussions of your repeating the whole entire year, right? It's kind of like, okay, if you're not good enough, you stay in regular classes, but if you're good enough, then don't go to AP classes, which I push myself with that because I found more peaceful on those high, like CP classes, AP classes, where more people, like kids are more like there because they want to study, they want to go to college, and then you have the regular classes, the kids don't want to do anything. They just 
throwing papers or just kind of having fun. But there was no a pressure of teachers. Like you, you have to make a decision really quick in high school whether you want to go to college or you finish high school and that's it. But there is no um, of thinking like people could be like, no, this is what you need to do because if you don't, you know. So there's no standards or, or, or of expectations for a kid who doesn't want to go to college. Then you just basically pass with C or F. It doesn't matter. You still graduate from high school. Roy raises a thorny question about her school here in California. One of the primary functions of American schools is supposed to be providing a path to economic opportunity for all Americans through education. Theoretically, at least, in that worldview, learning is a choice students make. So, in the school culture Roya experienced in California, teachers did not wield absolute power in the classroom, and institutionally, there were limits to what they could do to enforce order. Roya appreciated that teachers were prevented from using violence against kids, but she didn't like now being at the mercy of other students' behavior. She figured out that academic success was her ticket into a more orderly classroom, but what she couldn't understand was why that dynamic existed. Why was it important to preserve student power in the classroom if it undermined learning? Why did she have to earn her way into an orderly classroom? And in a country where education is supposed to be the key to opportunity, why would you let a 14-year-old choose to walk down a dead-end path? These questions challenge a belief at the core of our educational system, that success in school, and therefore life, is entirely a matter of individual choices, without regard for context or circumstance. Juliana comes from Brazil, a country where access to higher education is determined by a single, high-stakes college entrance exam. Well, it was really informal. We, we get to, of course, there is like a, a limit, of course, but um, we would make jokes, we would talk to them, we were very open with them. We, I would say it's a very good relationship. We had a really good relationship with the teachers. They would always help us. Uh, the school was also very present in our lives. And yeah, and it was just quite amazing to actually talk with a professor and be able to uh, question, uh, to have some questions about just life in general and life advice and that kind of stuff, especially do uh, in the last year, which is considered the 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 one that it's uh, that you're in, like freaking out because you have to study for the for the kind of like an SAT. It's a little bit of an inexact comparison. It plays a larger role in college admissions in Brazil than the SAT does in the U.S. Because it all comes down to the this uh, test to get into college. So, yeah, they were pretty good teachers and helped us a lot. In Juliana's school culture, teachers were both emotionally supportive and accessible. For Juliana, the relationship with her teachers, the opportunity to share her private anxieties, was an important part of her exam preparation. Attempts by schools and teachers to extend their reach into students' private lives has been a contentious part of American education from the start. Some of the fiercest early opponents of compulsory public schools were Catholic immigrants who believed, not incorrectly, that Protestant reformers were trying to use schools to teach Protestant values to their Catholic children. The use of school to influence the culture of the home is widespread. Ruth experienced a blurring of the line between public and private early in her time in Mexico. 
in third grade, Ms. Maria Elena would call us up one by one at the front of the classroom and check out our nails and our grooming and hair and make you like turn around and she would comment on whether your nails were trimmed, your hands were washed, your face was washed, your hair was brushed. And it was very humiliating to some people who didn't have the like grooming and they happened to be children of Brits who were at the school. You know, all the Mexican children were very tidy and nice. You know, I always was worried that she would say that my pants were stained or something. And then interestingly, she would bring her guitar and for Mother's Day and Christmas and all of these other occasions, we would learn songs as a group and perform them for our moms or our families. The teacher wasn't having quiet conversations with kids. She was using her power as the teacher in the classroom to turn something that felt personal to Ruth into a whole class lesson. In her reflection on it, Ruth separated the individual teacher's methods, which she definitely didn't like, from broader ideas about privacy and formality, which she felt like she understood. The boundaries are just held in a totally different way. And I think like looking at it from the US and from now having been here for two decades, it does seem blurrier. And I also feel like it's, they're just different rules in a way and different degrees of obligation. And um, yeah, what what would be seen as respectful and um, as part of honor in Mexico here would seem like blurry boundaries or unprofessional. And do you think the reverse is also true that what here is seen as professional and appropriate might be read as disinterest? And uncaring. Yeah, uncaring, self-centered, just rigid, rigid and cold. And I think, like, now, of course, I'm overgeneralizing. And I think those are things that you could just describe about the culture and look at it in any area that you want it to. And we're choosing relationship between student and teacher. But I think as a whole, the U.S. is seen as cold, rigid, and unable to really adapt to a particular context because they're tied to a structure and a per- certain like delineated parameters. Jessica echoed Ruth's sentiment, comparing her teachers here and in Mexico. So actually, our teachers were actually more, not more lenient, but they were more friendly. And then they they knew they understood kids a little bit better. You know, they were playful as well. And I feel like here, like, people are just strict because, you know, they don't want to get sued or they don't want to be put in a bad light. Like, it's all about their reputation. Like, they want to, like, like, seem like they're, like, you know, like good teachers, but they're not that close to you. Like, it's harder to, I feel like, to just form that bond. For Jessica, her American teacher's adherence to formality and their distance undermined their ability to teach because it kept them from connecting with students. I'm going to close this episode with an excerpt from my conversation with Harry, a university exchange student from China. He compares teaching methods, hierarchy, and formality at his Chinese university and UC Berkeley. See what you make of it. I attend a lot of classes the first week, and it impressed me a lot. Um, I thought the teachers in America will give a, a fantastic speeches, but <laughs> it is not like that. It is the same situation in China. <laughs> some t- some professors are very 
funny. They will tell a lot jokes, but some just、uh, read read that content on the book and just repeat it and、uh, write on the blackboard. Yeah. <laughs> Do your classmates behave the same way here as classmates in China? No, in China,、um, a lot of my classmates, <laughs> including me, sometimes usually,、uh, um, playing playing their their phone and、uh, skip the class. But here, everyone in the class who 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 actually come to the class will will pay a lot of attention in the class and、uh, take notes, and they are very hardworking. I think and.、Uh, Library, li- the library is almost full. Yeah, all the time. <laughs> you seem surprised by that. Yeah, because in China,、uh, we don't have that that many midterms in the semester, and、uh, usually, when it comes to the final exam, the library is full. But、uh, in Berkeley, the library is, is always full. <laughs> And do people participate in class differently here than in China? Yeah, the American students always、uh, always challenge the professors. We will ask a lot of questions, which is great. And in China,、um, we don't ask that that many questions. And、uh, I find a very interesting thing: the professor in the Berkeley,、uh, I attend the class. The professor is is very Great in that field, but he always made some <laughs> small mistakes, like the minors and the plus addition. <laughs> They often made some little mistake, and、uh, that is not common in China. In China, the professor will will make everything perfect. This episode focused on a lot of elements of classroom interactions between teachers and students. You heard examples of different models of classroom hierarchy. Different ideas about how teachers and students are supposed to behave, and ways teachers and students blur the line between public and private. Episode seven of Points in Between will explore language, language as a feature of identity, as an obstacle to be overcome by students, and as an entree into many parts of American society. Points in Between is a production of the California Global Education Project. I'm Shane Carter. See the points in between web page for additional information about each episode. You can find it at cispisglobal.org. Look under the Resources tab.